I'm Cinder Niemela, and along with Charlotte Gilmano, welcome to the Inspired Wisdom Podcast. I believe the most powerful gifts you can give yourself is time to reflect on your talents and experience, and then have the wisdom to act with confidence and grace. This podcast is for entrepreneurs, leaders, and individuals who want to thrive in work and life. Your journey to being connected and inspired by the world around you starts right now. Today, my guest on Inspired Wisdom is Dr. Vicki Brock. In 1994, Vicki left her 21-year career at Boeing to launch her consulting and coaching practice. While at Boeing, Vicki was the first woman the company sent to the executive MBA program. In 1994, Vicki joined the nascent coaching industry and she was introduced to Thomas Leonard. Thomas was the founder of CoachU and the International Coach Federation, or the ICF. After completing her coaching certification, Vicki was among the first cohort to earn her Master Coach Certification, or her MCC, from the ICF in 1998. Curious about the origins of coaching, Vicki went on to earn her PhD in Coaching and Human Development and she published the most comprehensive history of coaching in her book, The Sourcebook of Coaching History. This program is for you if you are a coach and want to hear more about the origins of coaching from a pioneer in the coaching industry. If you do business in the Middle East or you manage people from the East, Vicki will share her experience of working in Kuwait. If you would like to know more about coaching and how to select a coach for your business, Vicki will share some criteria for selecting a coach. Please check inspiredwisdom.us for speaker notes, links, and handouts for today's episode with Coach Vicki Brock. Hi, Vicki. Welcome to the call. How are you? I'm doing fine. I just had a client that was absolutely hilarious. I very seldom laugh that hard. <laughs> oh, that's great. Why don't we start with your role at Boeing? I, I changed jobs about every one and a half, two years, because I'd master the job and someone would offer me a new one. I started out as a tool and production planner in the B1 Avionics test lab when it was still a, a secret program that people didn't know we were working on it. And I did everything from... Um, planning and finance, to customer support, to computers, to uh, commercial airplane manufacturing research or marketing research. So I just did all sorts of jobs. And my, I think my most favorite job was working with a, an, in the audit department where we, um, audited the management control systems and we'd bring in high potential people for a year to work with us to get them broadened for higher levels of management. And that's where I discovered my love of supporting other people to be successful. I was the first woman to be sent to the executive MBA program by Boeing. And that was a two-year master's program. And when I came back from that, um, I left the corporate department and um, went to commercial airplanes. 
And that's when I left that management control systems job and went to commercial and went to market research. And they gave me the USSR in Eastern Europe because there was no business there. And then the wall came down and I was able to to research their um, aviation industry, their economy and all sorts of things about the country to see if they were a competitive threat to us, which they weren't. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. What a, what an amazing career and experience. So when you went to the um, executive MBA program, d did you take a leave of absence from Boeing to complete that program? Or were you also working? I was also working. What the program was, it was at the University of Washington. And for two years, you went Fridays and Saturdays to school. Boeing paid for the Friday off and we gave up our Saturdays and a couple of retreats a year and there. What was fascinating is that's where I first discovered there were people that have jobs that weren't working for Boeing. <laughs> oh, no kidding. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah, because you were, you were pretty young when you joined Boeing. Yeah, I joined directly out of college and Boeing with a hundred and some thousand people was like its own family. And that's what was fun is I could try out new jobs, transfer between organizations and groups, still have my reputation, but get just tons of experience. It was great. I also worked on the airplane programs and I really enjoyed my time at Boeing and the, all the opportunities that they, you know, that they gave us. How did you make the decision then to go into coaching? I was going through some personal changes when I got back from the executive MBA. I had very high expectations of the type of role I should have. And at that time, Boeing was going through a little bit of a downturn and there were not any roles that met the expectations I had. And also I started not fitting in. I was starting to discover who I was instead of being the good, loyal employee who did everything really, really well without any regard for what made her happy. Mm -hmm. And so I was starting to go through some of those changes. And when there was no job that was really what I wanted to do, then I had the opportunity because they were laying people off to take a voluntary layoff with a huge severance package. Oh, and no. I did. And part of that package was to have an outplacement service True to myself, I didn't go to the outplacement service that they had hired that would put you back in a corporate job. I went to a different one that was more about starting your own business and being an entrepreneur. And the, my placement specialist just happened to have attended a CTI coach training. Did you go through the CTI program? No, because even though I'd shifted a lot I was still very head-based corporate and the CTI program was too heart-based mm -hmm. and it scared me and spiritual-based. And so I went to coach you because it could be done all virtually. That's really important because I think there are so many people that are feeling a disconnect with the company that they're in, either the culture or the job or the opportunities. Is this company right for me? Should I try to flourish where I am? Or, mm -hmm. you know, what, what is the due diligence I need to do to make sure that I'm making the right move? 
Yeah, and at that time, the only thing I know, knew is I did not want to go back in a corporation. That's all I knew. So I didn't realize it at the time, more of my gut instincts. The thing that put it home to me was when I was at this place, they said, what would you truly like to do? I said, I don't know, just find something for me and I'll do a really good job at it. They said, no, that's not what we asked you. Mm. And it took me over a week of soul searching and looking back at the jobs I'd held in Boeing to find out which ones truly fulfilled my soul. And that was that one at the management control systems audit department where I was supporting high potentials. And I was a high potential too, but supporting them to grow into themselves and broaden their experience. I didn't know where I was going at the time, but I was at least open to learning. And I like the way you say what fulfilled your soul. Did you use that kind of a language then, or was there some other language that you used? I don't know what the language was, but it definitely was not that. (laughs) (laughs) You're you're, you're talking to me 20-some years later in hindsight. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, my, how we change. (laughs) Yes. Somehow you you went to uh, Coach U and you met Thomas Leonard, who was the founder yeah. of, he was the founder of Coach U, wasn't he? Absolutely. And the founder of ICF and yeah. What a dynamic fellow. How is it that you had a chance to meet with him and work so closely with him? Well, um, my, my first coach was Sandy Bylas, who actually bought Coach U from Thomas Leonard because Thomas was an incredible introvert and he was good at R&D, but not good at running a company. And when he realized that he sold it to Sandy. So I'd gone down to a two-day event that Coach Hugh was having in Houston and not having much money then because I wasn't working, Sandy said, hey, you can sleep on my couch. And, but there's a friend of mine has the second bedroom so you'll get the couch. I said, fine. I don't know who the friend was. And I was on the couch almost asleep and the slider door opens and somebody walks in and I start talking to him. It was Thomas. And he was doing a lot of stuff the next day and he'd been to work out and we started talking. And so I discovered how introverted he was. He actually threw up every time before he was up on stage. He just was so introverted and connected with him and from then on just um, had a special connection with him. A highly, highly creative person and I don't believe we would have phone coaching today if it weren't for Thomas or it wouldn't be as widespread Mm -hmm. because as an introvert, he was much more comfortable working with people over the phone. Oh, I see. So that's how he started it. Also, when he started Coach U, and the the first trainers, he got on board right away and he would fax everything. And people used to joke about having stock in a fax company. Then as soon as the internet came through, about a couple months later, he said, okay, we're now going to use the internet. So here you have all these coach trainers who are not technologically adept that Thomas was. And he shifted from fax to using the internet and technology. Coach U 
helped expand coaching you know globally more than anything because of their use of technology Mm -hmm. in order to spread coaching it was either he or sandy i don't i think it was him um who said okay we will offer five scholarships to the first people of from each country who join coach you and take our training yeah and so some of the mccs today and the senior people in in certain countries you know countries across the world went through the coach you program virtually oh it was a great program i went through it when i was traveling a lot with me and why and it was the way to connect with a community where we had shared values and we were learning and connecting. It was just awesome. I would spend every evening while some of my other consultants were going out and drinking or going to dinner or something, I would go back to my apartment and um, connect and coach you. Well, exactly. And, you know, ICF was created, the International Coach Federation, because the people who graduated from Coach U wanted a community to continue when the classes stopped. And that's why it was started in the first place. So you became very involved in coaching and you were a trainer, you were a a mentor. I I actually volunteered with a lady named Christine Martin, 2005-2006, to uh, run the credentialing and accreditation committee for the ICF. Christine handled the individual credentialing, all the assessors for that. I handled the accreditation of the coach training programs so that they could be accredited to give the ICF exam and to train coaches with coach-specific training. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a whole group of the most wonderful MCC uh, assessors to accredit the programs. They'd work in teams, and it was, inc- it, it was a great learning experience and bonding with you know other senior coaches who were also volunteering. Yes. And then you got your PhD in coaching and wrote that wonderful source book of coaching. Tell us a little bit about what inspired you to go into that direction. Well, I love to learn. And I, you know, with Thomas Leonard and then Laura Whitworth has since passed away. She was one of the founders of CTI and the Professional Personal Coaches Association. Um, The two of them I knew fairly well, and they would uh, indirectly and sometimes directly say, well, one or the both of them had created coaching. And I knew that one person could not have created this thing. And so as I started looking into it, I thought, well, heck, why not get credit? Let's get a PhD and get credit for doing what I'm doing. I realized I had have an interview addiction. I interviewed a hundred over 175 people all over the world about how they think, how they thought coaching got started, and what influenced them, and who did they see as the key influencers in the development of coaching? Because I would just email anybody, say, "Hey, I'm doing this. I'm doing this. I'd really like to interview so and so. Recommended you." And I did that once to Sir John Whitmore. Didn't know John from anybody. And I sent him an email in the morning. Um, that afternoon, my phone rings. And I pick up the phone. There's this British voice saying, is this a good time to interview me? 
And he gave me over an hour interview on what he believed were the roots and the evolution of coaching. And so people were so generous, Cinder, of their time. And I also used those interviews as an opportunity to plant seeds about the collaborative nature and the supportive nature of coaching. What did you find then? How did you answer that question of who, who first discovered coaching? Well, the, the first thing was coaching has always, some form of coaching has always existed, whether it's from Socrates. But the coaching years and years ago was more like mentoring. Coaching as we know it today um, really emerged in the 1980s and actually became professionalized in the mid-1990s when people just developed curriculum to train people to be coaches. A lot of it came, and I also got to interview Werner Earhart of Est, a lot of it came from people who'd attended his programs or been involved in leading his programs. He popularized personal growth, responsibility, and choice in the 70s uh, through his S and Landmark programs. But many of those people and many people who went through his programs, they got out of the program. They were totally ready to grow and develop, but there was nothing there to support them. Mm. So many of these people started coaching as we know it today that evolved into coaching that we know it today. That was the one link. Not saying that Werner was ever a coach. He wasn't. But he was all about personal growth and people choosing, successful people choosing personal growth was really set up the need for coaches. The other thing was the socioeconomic environment. So what was going on with people shifting and moving geographically, their support systems no longer existed. All of this came together. So the people that, that came into coaching originally were from fields of not as much psychology in the beginning, but leadership, um, adult learning, sports, all these things, they all brought what they knew into coaching and then put it together differently such that we know coaching as it exists today. I think it was in the 80s, some organizations retained psychologists, but then that went out of favor as coaching came more into favor. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I would. David Peterson, who now heads up uh, leadership training and coaching at Google, he was at Personnel Decisions International, and he's a psychologist, and there were a group of psychologists doing work in organizations. In 1980, they first advertised executive coaching in their brochure from their company. Yeah, yeah, they were psychologists doing executive coaching. How has the training changed? Training in the beginning, some of the early schools were, like we said, Coach U, the Coaches Training Institute, CTI, New Ventures West, Newfield Network, which is more of an ontological approach. Hudson Institute was more of an adult development approach. And I'd say with the exception of Hudson, most of the schools were belief-based. The link between 
the theories and models that supported the coach training was lost. It was more belief-based. And the biggest shift from 2000 on has been the, the relinking of research theories and models to the tools of coaching. And there's also been far more research instead of using psychological sports or leadership theories and models is the creation of models specific to coaching. Mm -hmm. Well, it sounds like there are a lot of different approaches to coaching. What recommendations would you give to someone if they're thinking about hiring a coach? How do they find the person and what kind of qualifications would they look for? I don't just flat recommend certain qualifications or certain people because at all the, 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 the match between the, the client and the coach, the chemistry match, will really is the biggest predicator of success for the, the client. So what I do is I, I suggest that people get referrals and references that they search, actually even search websites. Um, some people go, there's some like the ICF and some other places have lists of coaches, but to really try and find a coach that resonates with you. I'm interviewed a lot to be hired by people. And the first thing I do is I'll ask them, what are the top three things you want to achieve by working with a coach? And if they don't know, then we have another conversation. If they know, um, that may then predicate a conversation on the type and style of coach. I also ask, how do they best learn? If they want a certain level of credential, is to check and make sure the person's been trained as a coach. Whether they have a credential with the ICF or not, you know, that, that's another way. It's like a McDonald's. You know you're going to get a certain level of quality. And, and then just interview quite a few coaches and see which ones you resonate with. And then pick one based on your gut. I have a lot of um, coaches that I know that are not credentialed. They've been trained, but they have not, they've chosen not to go the ICF route but they've been trained especially as a coach and they are phenomenal coaches. I know some coaches that are more, should I say bleeding into psychology, mm -hmm. which I don't do. I know some coaches that are highly oriented, more a consultative coach type, which is more my style on the business end. I would recommend that people really go with their gut and recognize that while they're interviewing someone to be their coach, that coach is also interviewing them to see if they're a good client for each other. Mm. Yeah, that's great. Well, I have a few questions that I can put in the show notes, questions that people who aren't familiar with coaching, and it, you know, I, I still meet a lot of people who really have never worked with a coach before who want to have their top three objectives but don't know what to ask, don't know how to interview. So I have some questions and I'll put them in the show notes. Well, you went from coaching, uh, from learning coaching and being and very involved in the ICF to getting your PhD in coaching and these amazing findings. 
And then you started doing some global coaching. Can you tell us a little bit about how you made that transition? You know, what was the opportunity that, that came up for you? Yeah, the, the opportunity was while I was doing my PhD as, as I was doing all these interviews, I realized that coaching was not in some countries across the globe. And so I made a commitment that I was going to support natives of countries bring coaching to their country. Once I set that intention out there, I, I ended up starting mentoring some, some people that, um, cause I was still teaching at coach U and, I hadn't started teaching at University of Texas at Dallas yet, but they're, they're all, you know, international schools. And I also put it on my website and was very vocal about that was my intention to help people bring coaching to their country. When I was interviewed by people who wanted a mentor coach from international things, I'd ask them, what is your primary goal for coaching or what is your vision? A couple of people had a vision big enough that aligned with my vision. That like one lady in Africa, in uh, Nairobi, wanted to be the first MCC in, in Eastern Africa and train executives and business people to shift the politics in the country within Kenya. Mm, awesome. So when, yeah, so when somebody had a vision like that, I said, okay, I'm going to work with you. And so a lot of that work, they would hire me, and then eventually we became more peers, and there'd be a lot of pro bono work um, and some paid work and some travel, because I love to travel to these countries to help them and I'd somewhat come in and be the big fish in the little pond and help them be successful. Um, I did this in Kuwait too. Spent a lot of years traveling to Kuwait and the first English Arabic coaching program that was indigenous to Kuwait that was um, you know, accredited by the ICF. And along the way, helping those people be successful, whether they were hosting conferences or helping change the next generation of people in their countries. Uh, one of the, the ladies I met, she became the first MCC in um, Iceland, first and only MCC in Iceland. Her vision is to use Iceland as a beta test area to shift the entire country to have more of a coaching culture because there's only 350,000 people in the whole country and they know the people leading the country. So it's offering coaching and changing the culture. And eventually she would like to see coaching win the Nobel Peace Prize. Oh. These are the kind of people that I attracted because I had a vision to help them behind the scenes to be very, very successful. And they had a vision they want to achieve, so we matched and just went from there. 
I know your experience in uh, Kuwait, that you spent a lot of time going back and forth to Kuwait, uh, helping them to develop their coach training program. What differences do you see, if any, in coaching in an Arab country versus um, the U.S.? The biggest difference I saw was in an Arab country, the a lot of the people who took the training are men, some are women, um, but the men are so family oriented and involved with the growth and education of their children. It's amazing. And as a culture, people really revere and take care of and spend time with their parents. Uh, they're also at least on the surface, much more open and tolerant of other belief systems. And the newer generation, a lot of the people attending these the courses were high potential people um, in their oh, late 20s, early 30s, early to mid 30s. And many of them, and that they and their wives both worked for predominantly the oil companies, were very highly educated and really committed to shifting from the more autocratic, I wouldn't say autocratic, more um, good old boys network, let's put it that way. Mm -hmm. And there's still some of that because in the, the Muslim culture, uh, there's a lot of things for, that men do, and a lot of business gets transacted, and a lot of things that only women do. But I just saw far more equality there mm -hmm. in, 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 in their business environment. Mm -hmm. Did you get to other Arab countries besides Kuwait? I got to... Qatar, but that was more just visiting a person I'd worked with in Yemen who had a big vision for Yemen and had to, to, to leave the country because of the civil war mm -hmm. and settled in Qatar and resides there still because of the situation in Yemen. I did not go to Saudi Arabia, though I've coached people in Saudi, men in Saudi Arabia. They're a little more restrictive. Um, but no, it's mainly just Kuwait. Kuwait's almost like a Switzerland, you know, mm. uh, more progressive um, and and welcoming. But it was a good experience. And I learned a lot about the Muslim culture. In fact, many of the people I met, their generosity and their welcoming of other beliefs and other um, living styles, my colleague there, dressed very traditional, and yet was very open about when it's an international hotel and there's international people, people run around in bikinis, even though I was embarrassed for the people in bikinis. I mean, they're just more very accepting, yet very strong in their own tradition. Well, a couple questions come to mind. I want you to be able to uh, talk about active legacy. And I still hear so many times in organizations where people are talking about their legacy as though they've, they've died and they're looking back at what 
you know, what they've left behind for others. I want to talk a little bit about your concept, your, your beliefs and your approach to an active legacy. Right. And I guess active legacy came about because of just what you said, people looking back at when they're gone and they're no longer here. Um, so let me first define an active legacy. An active legacy is created moment by moment. It's actually in the moment through the choices and actions, choices you make and actions you take according that are according to your values and beliefs. For example, Cinder, if you were to die in the next five minutes, what is your legacy? Talking to you. <laughs> we'll still be talking. talking. Is being curious and, you know, wanting to spread the story of other people globally so that we have some shared understanding of our commonality and compassion mm -hmm. for each other. I'd also say your legacy is bringing that in the corporations where you've been, standing mm -hmm. tall for integrity and ethics and doing what's right, as well as really being a global citizen and accepting of people as they are. Oh, thank you. you have, I've known you for 20 some years. <laughs> yes, that's right. We've known each other a long time. Well, th thank you for that. How, um, how do you work with people around their active legacy? As I may do a question just like I did with you mm -hmm. right here. I ask them, how, is their, how does their life today align with their ideal life? What choices do they make? Um, what's working for them? What's not? And again, people start at all different places. You've done a lot of growth work. Some people, I, when I start working with them, they've done no growth work. So we may start with just looking at what are their values? What's most important to them? And then we, we build on that. Uh, I may have them take a look at what are the things you've most enjoyed in your life? What are the jobs you've had? What did you learn from each job? So, so I'll get them oriented toward growth and learning and opportunities and choice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's no one specific uh, approach. It's, it's customized. Some, I may even have them do some assessments. I've got an assessment I use that talks about, you know, people's strengths. This assessment defines a strength as where you get energy. And generally where people get energy is something they do quite well. Mm -hmm. So I may have them do that assessment as a way to start having them become more aware. With active legacy and with coaching, my whole approach is to raise awareness so someone can then be at conscious choice. Why don't you tell us who some of your ideal clients are? One of them is that they have a big vision and want to make a big difference in the world. That is the number one thing that will excite me to work with a client that they're open and willing to partner. 
that they have a sense of humor and can um, and can handle my style, which my style is to respectfully provoke people. <laughs> so, so I warn people that that I will respectfully provoke them. In fact, once I got, I almost got more than I bargained for. I was being interviewed by somebody who was a executive, who was a scientific type, engineer type. When he interviewed me, he actually scared me because he was so direct and so this. And then when he hired me, he said, I hired you because you said you'd respectfully provoke me. And no one, people are scared of me. And I thought, oh, gosh, I've been working with him about three years now. He's a pussycat. But that called me to a higher plane. And also, I love working with people who challenge me and, and cause me to grow. Well, that's the one thing I do love about coaching is that our ideal clients, they challenge us to grow and stay yep. just one step ahead of them. If people have a big vision for the contribution they want to make, what advice would you give a person who is working within an organization in order to see if it's the right fit for them? I first have them make sure that their vision for them is grounded in their values and grounded in who they are, then see whether they have the courage to show up and support that vision on one side. On the other side, I would have them look to see whether that vision is in alignment with the values, beliefs, and um, direction of the company. Sometimes, depending on the position, people can affect that, affect the company. Sometimes they can't. If they can't or they're not sure, then what we do is we run experiments and test it out and gather support in order to be able to make the decision on whether this is the right place for them to do that. Yeah, that's great. When you think about what you know now, what's one thing you know now that you wish you knew earlier in your life? a really good question. Um, boy. I wish earlier in my life I'd known who I was because I really didn't discover who I was or I'd lost who I was early on growing up when I wanted to be the, the good girl, the four-point student, successful according to other people's standards. I lost my own standards and values. And I gained that back in my, I'd say, early 40s, late 30s, early 40s. I wish I'd never lost that. And I'd known who I was and be able to live my life fully from that place. Mm. And that wasn't my path. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it's one that is so commonly shared. I mean, I share that same one with you where we didn't mm -hmm. know ourselves earlier compromised who we were to meet other people's expectations of us. And I'm not sure, Cinder, whether that was a sign of the times or whether that is part of the process we all go through. Because I see some kids today, I met a, a young 18-year-old in Kenya who actually sat me down when I was there a couple weeks ago and asked me, who am I? Not my job. And I'm going, you're 18? I had to think about it. He really challenged me. And then I checked out and at 
2014, he developed a not-for-profit called We Care that plants trees all over Kenya, and he's gathering children to plant trees so they can reforest Kenya. Mm, I've heard about so, him. Yes. Yeah, yeah, amazing young man. And yet, so I see people like that, and that's where I really wish it, that that maybe I'd been that focused at that young of an age. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't. Yeah. Perhaps that drove your commitment to coaching and developing others because you know what it feels like not to have that kind of clarity and passion. Well said. <laughs> that's, that's very true. Mm. Where do you see coaching going? I see coaching becoming more integrated in people's lives, just like psychology, self-help, and all that has become more integrated. I still see the need for professional coaches. Um, I see whether it's teachers starting to use a coaching approach to teaching, which is asking questions and listening rather than rote memorization. I see the generation coming up far more aware of who they are and grounded as a result of coaching. And it's going to be woven into the tapestry of our lives far more deeply. Mm -hmm. And it will become more commoditized also based on this. Um, there's, There's many, many people now that are being trained as coaches that don't want to become a coach. They want to use it in their life in order to command the prices above commodity levels people are going to have to offer something unique in their approaches. Great insights. And so if you uh, would leave us with your, your purpose in life and the vision that you have for this next phase of your life. <laughs> I love your laugh. Oh, it's, it's because my, my vision in life is to raise awareness. So each is a conscious choice. That's also how I define coaching. My vision for the rest of my life, this next phase, I have no clue. I'm right in the, in the, in the space of discovery about that. And the way I'm moving forward to discover that is I'm cleaning things out. I'm ridding myself of things that are carryovers from my past of where I've been. I'm creating a lot of open space for what may come in. And I'm asking to be, to be open and aware to what might be next for me. And I don't know what that is. It's a little scary, but that's where I am. Well, I hope uh, when you've found that, and I, I'll be in touch with you, that we have yes. you back on board, because I have a feeling it's going to be something big. And I want to make sure that, you know, we share that with the world, to the extent that I can reach it. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you, though. This has been exciting. Thought-pondering questions here. Oh, there's so much more to you, Vicki Brock. And I will put a link to your book in the show notes. I'll also put a link to your website. 
and uh, and your LinkedIn if you want people to contact you and be in touch with you. And any anything else that you want me to put in the show notes for people, please uh, send that along. Any final words that you want to say? Just for everyone to really be conscious, are you living your active legacy right now? And if not, what are you going to do to start, start living it? Perfect. And you have some more content about active legacy on your website as well, don't you? Yeah, you can. It's VickiBrock.com. And it also links if people want to know more about coaching history to the coachinghistory.com website where I've got charts and presentations and all sorts of stuff for people that want more information. Perfect. I will put all those links in the show notes then. Well, Vicki, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you, Cinder. <laughs> and off to our active legacy. I'm Cinder Niemela, and you've been listening to the Inspired Wisdom Podcast. Thank you for joining us. We hope these conversations illuminate your path to your highest potential. For show notes and links to resources mentioned during today's episode, please go to inspiredwisdom.us. You can also follow Inspired Wisdom on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Until next time, design a fulfilling and prosperous life that engages your talents and passions.